In May of 1845, Josiah Lamborn had been in court for several days, and it was not going well. He had spent the first few days calling witness after witness, but none of them had been able to, or, or willing, to say anything to incriminate the five men who now sat on the opposite side of the court, on trial for their lives for conspiring to murder Joseph and Hiram Smith. Lamborn needed someone to put them not just in the neighborhood of the Carthage jail, but to testify that they had actively encouraged and assisted in the murder. As his last hope, Josiah Lamborn had three final witnesses to call. Today's episode is the last in our series about the trial of the accused murderers of Joseph and Hiram Smith. I'm Nate Olson, and this is Adventures in Mormon History. Lamborn rolled the dice and called William Daniels to the stand. William Daniels was a cooper by trade who came to Illinois. He reported that he fell in with the mob to see what they would do, and he witnessed the murders. Now, in the months between the murders and the trials, Daniels had both converted to Mormonism and published a pamphlet describing what he saw at the Carthage jail. The pamphlet sold at 25 cents a copy. It was filled with sensational details, and grieving Latter-day Saints loved it. The pamphlet described how Joseph Smith fell from the window, pulled himself up to the well, and smiled at his killers with a look of quiet resignation. Four men then fired a coup de grace, killing him instantly. The pamphlet then describes a barefoot man with rolled up pants running towards his body with a knife, shouting, This is old Joe! I know him! I know you old Joe! Damn ye! But a sudden powerful light burst through the heavens on the bloody scene. It froze everyone with terror and consternation, and men began to run for their lives. Williams called to some, in a great fright, to come help their comrades who were frozen at the scene. Now, some Latter-day Saints appreciated this account, but Lamborn knew that the jury would not, and he began asking Daniels questions to put distance between his in-court testimony and the more sensational aspects of his pamphlet. At first, Lamborn appeared to make good progress. Daniels explained that he had not written the pamphlet himself. Instead, he had told his story to Lyman Littlefield, who in turn wrote it up and began selling the pamphlet, but the embellishments were Littlefield's, not his. Lamborn then asked, what did you see? Daniels explained that he was at the railroad shanties and heard Williams read the order disbanding the Warsaw militia. Then, Tom Sharp jumped up on the railroad ties and gave an inciting speech, urging them to kill the Smiths, get rid of the Mormons, and odds were, since Governor Ford was in Nauvoo at the time, the Mormons would fly into a rage and kill him too. And then, we'd be rid of all of them. The Mormons, Joe Smith, and the governor. Then, William Grover came forward and said he would go to Carthage if nobody else would. At the jail, he saw Grover rush inside with a double-barreled shotgun while Levi Williams encouraged the mob. Rush in, boys! There is no danger! He described seeing Joseph fall from the window, where he was shot several more times. Lamborn then tried to distance Daniels further from the pamphlet. Did you see anyone rush at the body with a knife? Daniels responded, No, no, I didn't see anything like that. Did you see any men frozen in terror? Uh, no, no, I did not. Did you see a light from the sky? 
But now Daniel's answer took Lamborn by surprise. I did see a light, yes. Lamborn, a bit taken aback, said, Well, might it have been a reflection from a musket? Daniel said, I, I don't say what it was. Lamborn, did anybody else see it? Daniel said he did not know. Well, it didn't frighten anybody, did it? To which Daniels responded, I was very much frightened, considerably excited, yes. Orville Browning, the lead defense counsel, cross-examined Daniels. His mission was to depict Daniels as a dishonest person who would tell a story to make a quick buck. He drew out that Daniels had only recently converted to the church, and since moving to Nauvoo, he had not followed his trade as a cooper. Instead, he earned his living telling his story about the death of Joseph Smith. After Daniels had finished his testimony, Lamborn called his next witness, Benjamin Brackenberry, who was a member of the Warsaw Militia. He described how a messenger from the Carthage Greys had arrived, inviting the group to come now and murder the Smiths. But beyond these generalities, Brackenberry testified about specific things that the defendants had said and done to bring about the murders. Brackenberry said that Mark Aldridge directed that they all spread out a little bit as they headed back to Carthage along the main road, but they would take the last three miles through the woods to approach the jail from the north. He said that Aldrich, Grover, Sharp, and Williams were at the shanties, and Davis had passed him on the way to the jail. Then, while he was on the road, a small group of men came running back from the jail, announcing that they had killed the Smiths. He identified William Grover as being part of this group. He described how Grover, holding up his double-barrel shotgun, said that he had killed Joseph Smith, and that Smith was a damn stout man. I went into the room where Smith was, and Smith struck me in the face twice. The mob then headed to the Warsaw House, a tavern about 20 miles away from the jail. To convict the defendants of conspiring to murder the Smiths, this was the type of evidence that Lamborn needed. That is, if it could survive cross-examination. And once again, Browning was ready. He got Brackenberry to admit that he had been drinking that day. Brackenberry said, I did have something to drink that day. I had taken enough to make me feel nice. And he also admitted that he would remember things better if he hadn't felt so nice. Browning then asked him where he lived, what he did for a living, how he paid for his board, his food, and his clothes. Brackenberry admitted that he lived in Nauvoo and he loafed for a living. That is, he did no work at all. Some of the Mormon people paid for his board, his food, his clothing. He didn't rightly know who. Lamborn must have suspected that the testimonies of Daniels and Brackenberry had serious problems. The jury, made entirely of non-Mormons, was not likely to give much weight to the more miraculous things Daniels had testified about, such as the light from heaven he saw after Joseph Smith died. Also, the jury was made up of hard-working farmers. Lamborn could only imagine what they thought of his two witnesses, professional loafers supported by the people of Nauvoo. Browning, the defense counsel, had proved more than equal to everything he had thrown at him so far. But the next witness would be a match even for him. The doors open, 
and in walked Eliza Jane Graham. Graham worked at the Warsaw House, a tavern about 20 miles from Carthage. She testified that on the night of June 27, 1844, just before dark, Tom Sharp came riding in. He was covered with sweat and dust from his journey. She brought him some water, and as he drank, he told her, We've just come from Carthage. We've finished off the leading men of the Mormon Church. Grover and Davis arrived about midnight and asked her to prepare supper for 20 men. She described how Grover and Davis were arguing about who had killed Joseph Smith. I killed old Joe, Grover said. No, I killed him, yelled Davis. This bragging, arguing, and rejoicing carried on until about two o'clock in the morning. Now, what none of the men at the Warsaw House knew was that Eliza Jane Graham was herself a Latter-day Saint, one of the very few to participate in the trial and the only one with no financial stake in her testimony. Browning had a much more difficult time cross-examining Graham. She was neither a drunk nor a loafer. She made her living by hard work and not by telling stories. And so the cross-examination largely focused on the fact that she was a Mormon. She said she did know Brigham Young and John Taylor by sight, but she had no conversations with them about her testimony. She also knew by sight Emma Smith and Mary Fielding Smith, the widows of Joseph and Hiram, but she wasn't personally acquainted with either of them. Having achieved nothing else, Browning ended his cross-examination and Eliza Jane Graham stepped down from the witness stand. At the conclusion of the witnesses and all the evidence, Josiah Lamborn prepared his closing argument. Lamborn began with a series of unexpected concessions. He disavowed entirely the testimonies of Daniels, Brackenberry, and Eliza Graham. He called Daniels' statement a tissue of falsehood, Brackenberry's testimony the word of a drunk loafer, and Eliza Graham a woman who was honest but mistaken in what she said. Lamborn then entirely dismissed the charge against William Grover and Jacob Davis. Now, why would he do this? Well, in his history of the Carthage trials, Dallin H. Oaks suggests there might be three reasons. First, he may have done this to try to win the jury's favor by disavowing the testimony of the Mormon witnesses. Another reason is that he feared if he struck too hard, the spectators might form a lynch mob and kill him. There is a third and uglier possibility, too. During his time as the Attorney General for Illinois, Lamborn had been hounded by rumors of corruption, and it's possible that Lamborn may have been bribed to throw the case. Three attorneys argued for the defense. Calvin Warren argued that if these men are guilty, then is every man, woman, and child in the county guilty? Sure, the defendants were enraged at the audacity and the conduct of the Smiths, but the law, he argued, was based upon public opinion. And since public opinion supported killing the Smiths, these men should be found not guilty. Onias Skinner, for his part, didn't play on anti-Mormon sentiment and instead attacked Lamborn. Rotten with ambition, he said, Lamborn prosecutes, conviction must follow, guilty or innocent. 
This enviable reputation, the glory of his highest ambition, he desires to sustain by convicting these defendants. Skinner then rehashed the testimony of the witnesses, arguing that there was no evidence of a common design. Once they were disbanded, some of the militia members were cursing the governor, some were abusing the Mormons, some were speaking about getting dinner in Warsaw, and others were shooting targets. He recounted how Hobel, Warren, and Dixon, none of these witnesses recognized anybody in the mob. The mob must not have been made up of Warsaw men, but strangers, and there was no shortage of such people who wanted to murder the Smiths. The mob, he said, could have been anybody. Orville Browning then made the final argument. Not a friend of Joseph Smith per se, Orville Browning was well acquainted with him. He had been counsel for Joseph Smith in the past, and among the last letters that Joseph wrote from the Carthage jail was a letter to Orville Browning asking him to come represent him. He turned to how Lamborn dropped the case against Davis and Grover. Since there was just as much evidence against them as against Aldrich, Williams, and Sharp, if the case against some must be dropped, then the case against all must be. Most darkly, Browning raised the prospect, the real prospect, of a civil war that might follow conviction. But let a sentence of conviction be carried into execution, he warned. The gallows will be a beacon around which to rally a more terrible armed force than you or I have ever seen. It will be the commencement of a more bloody and terrible war than you and I would want to see. Having now heard all the evidence and the arguments, the jury was sent to reach a verdict. After two and a half hours, they returned to the courtroom. Everyone was silent as the foreman read, We, the jury, find the defendants not guilty as charged in the indictment. In later years, a persistent legend would exist among the Mormon people that the killers of Joseph and Hiram met fittingly gruesome ends, as divine justice made up for what the jury could not do. But looking at these defendants, that does not at all appear to be the case. Mark Aldrich would leave for California during the gold rush. He served three terms in the state legislature before retiring. Jacob Davis, for his part, served four terms in the Illinois State Legislature and was finally elected to Congress in 1856. William Grover was appointed U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Missouri. Tom Sharp, in later life, would serve three terms as the mayor of Warsaw, later as a judge in Hancock County, and in his advanced years he would serve as a school principal. When asked later on if he really had, in fact, killed Joseph and Hiram, he responded smugly, Well, the jury didn't think so. The defense counsel, Orville Browning, would go on to found the Republican Party in 1856. In 1860, he secured the nomination of Abraham Lincoln. He would serve later on in the U.S. Senate and still later as Secretary for the Interior. The three people who misfortune did overtake were the prosecutor, Josiah Lamborn, the judge, Richard Young, and Governor Tom Ford, who had worked hard to bring the accused killers to justice. Josiah Lamborn continued to drink heavily. He abandoned his wife and children and consorted with gamblers. He would die in 1847, a ruined man in a shell of his former self. 
Judge Richard Young would move to Washington, D.C., but gradually descended into madness and was hospitalized in an asylum. He was released after six months, but died the next year. Governor Tom Ford was voted out of office and for a time lived on charity of the people of his town. After contracting tuberculosis, he wrote a history of Illinois in the hopes of leaving something for his destitute children. And while some Latter-day Saints would elect to stay in Illinois and the surrounding areas, the main body of the church left for the Rocky Mountains the following year to find a place of peace and safety. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of Adventures in Mormon History. I'm your host, Nate Olson.